years ago, I was working at a restaurant, and about a middle-aged fellow was hired to come and work with me and one other guy uh, to work the really, really late shift. Uh, as happens when there's just three of you and there isn't a whole lot to do at a restaurant in one of the morning, uh, you begin to talk. Well, it turns out this guy had quit a very well-paying job to come and work with me and this guy in fast food for the purpose of starting his own security firm. Now, the idea was him and his buddy were going to uh, escort people for an evening or for an activity or an event, uh, and that's what he wanted to do with his life, wanted to start this business and do that kind of work. And so one night he would uh, escort a celebrity into town who was there perhaps to do a performance or an appearance, and then on another night he might uh, usher a, uh, a lady who needs to get her stuff from an abusive spouse. Uh, but he, that was what he wanted to do with his life, and really his business hadn't taken off yet, and so he came uh, to work with us. Now, by the time I met him, uh, he already had the license for the business, and he already had taken a number of classes and had license to carry a fully loaded weapon on his person at all times. It also meant he had the right or had the certification to have a fully loaded weapon in his car at all times. And we understood, I understood that this meant that he was always, in, at any moment, given any given moment, he was armed. But on top of the idea that he was carrying a weapon, he was also taking a number of martial arts classes, including a martial art that had been made very famous by one Bruce Lee. So if you're picturing in your mind an approximately 40-year-old man with a buzz cut, wide-eyed look, and a little bit of the jitters, you've got the picture right. But that was the kind of thing he wanted to do. Like I said, he had several jobs while I knew him guarding uh, some well-known celebrities. I think Miley Cyrus was one of them uh, for an evening. But the impact he had in my life was on the nights we worked together, I didn't have to worry about the kind of trouble that shows up at one in the morning at a restaurant. I didn't have to worry about the drunk guy who might walk in. I didn't want to worry about the young guy who might get the, uh, the boldness to come and try and rob our store. I was never worried the nights that we worked together. Now, last week, we came back to our study in the book of Matthew. And we come to these five verses and an invitation from Jesus to rest. By rest, what we mean is to be untroubled in the soul. So swinging in a hammock on a nice summer day with a glass of tea might be nice and relaxing, but that's not the kind of rest we're talking about. We are talking about the ability to know that we have work to do, the ability to face full front our responsibilities and be untroubled in our soul, to have a sense or an idea of an existential calm, or perhaps we would describe it as a gospel sanity. Jesus is making the claim here that this kind of rest is only possible through a relationship with him. Now, last week, we said we could be untroubled in our soul. We can have this rest because God is our heavenly father. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's the thing I would have you write down first. As a Christian, I can rest because Christ is my security. As a Christian, I can rest because Christ is my security. We are going to focus this morning on verse 27 here in Matthew 11. And what we find in verse 27 is perhaps the most offensive words you're going to find in all of the book of Matthew. They're offensive to other religions. They are offensive to our most natural human sensibilities. 
But it is in these offensive words that we are going to find the reason that we believe that once you're a Christian, you can never not be a Christian. Or we like to use the phrase sometimes, once saved, always saved. Or we might say it this way. We might say a Christian, because of what Christ says here, has no reason to doubt that there is grace for them. We find why it is we believe that Jesus is our security and why we believe because of that we can have rest. Three points for you this morning. Number one, number one, Christ is our security because Christ came from the Father. Christ came from the Father. Look at the opening verse in verse 27, or the opening phrase in verse 27. Jesus says, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. The idea there is one of commission. So a king has a right to take a a servant and say, I give you all of my authority to go and act on my behalf. Or a church might commission a missionary. A missionary might go to another country and say, I am here representing First Baptist Church of Maxwell. But the idea is that it is one of commission. But I also want you to note, there's a parallel here with verse 25. This idea of authority. In verse 25, Jesus calls the Heavenly Father Lord of heaven and earth. It is a statement of authority. And Jesus is claiming the title also belongs to him. This is an unquestionable moment where he is clearly declaring himself equal with God. It's a statement of divinity. He is equal with the Father in power, authority, and glory. And what he's saying here is he has received from the Father the position of mediator. He has received all judgment, meaning Christ or Jesus is the one who has the fitness to do, or the, is the one who decides whether or not you have the fitness to stand before God. He is the one to make that judgment. But I also want you to note here that this commission comes from the Father, meaning it is in joint resolution. What this means is that Jesus was not reluctant. Isaiah was reluctant. Why was Isaiah reluctant? Because he thought he was too much of a sinner. Jeremiah was reluctant because he thought the job was going to be too hard. But Jesus was not reluctant. The Father and the Son were involved. They were agreed. They were together in this commission. Now, we know this is true. Why? Because it's told again in other passages. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He sent his son. He was in commission, together with his son, involved in our salvation. The Father was an active participant in accomplishing our salvation. And I want you to understand the implication of this. For a Muslim, this idea is blasphemous because it brings God too close. God becoming human is not something the God of the universe is supposed to do that is too close. And therefore, they would say Jesus can't be God as he is claiming here. A Buddhist would would have a different problem. They would say, you know, to have a God who actively participates in plans to save us must mean there is an absolute morality. It must mean that there is a father who has a standard and an unrighteous who have failed to meet that standard. And so what we see is there is an elimination of the possibility that Jesus is simply a good teacher. 
We have to eliminate the possibility that Jesus is simply a divinely enlightened individual. Jesus is saying he came from God. He is saying he is God, which is about the most arrogant thing a person can say, unless it's true. What does this mean for us? It means that Jesus has the authority to bring about a new relationship between us and God. He has the Father's blessing to bring bring about this new relationship. He is the one who has the authority to set the terms of the relationship. And he has set the terms. He has called it what? Faith. He has said, if you hear what he says, and you see what he does, and you believe it, and you trust it, that is faith. And if you agree to these terms, your eternal destiny is set. If you agree to these terms, your life is now in his hands, and nothing can be undone. The enemy may accuse you before God. You might be guilty of every possible sin laid out. But Jesus responds to that by telling the Father, they have agreed to the terms for peace. God then would tell our enemy, be gone. For whatever agreement the Son has made, the Father obliged, because together they accomplished our salvation. And some of you might say, well, what about my past? Jesus would respond by saying, the terms are set. This is what you must do. You must believe. You might say, what about my present Jesus says, if you've agreed to the terms, then everything is settled. You might say, how is this possible? And Jesus responds, because all authority is given to me by the Father. So Jesus came from the Father. That is why he is our security. Secondly, this morning, Jesus is our security because Christ knows the Father. Christ knows the Father. Note the second and third phrase here in the text. No man knoweth the Son, but the Father Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. It's a further explanation that the Father and Son were intimately involved in accomplishing our salvation. Now, the last time, the last point was an emphasis on authority. Here, the idea is one of ability. Let me forgive me for the illustration. It was the only one I could think of. But back at the beginning of the year, the president was impeached. Now, because of this, there were a number of congressional hearings. And most of those hearings had to involve ambassadors and former ambassadors and people who worked at the State Department. I watched a lot of those hearings, and and here's the takeaway. The president was trying to accomplish one thing in Ukraine. The State Department was trying to accomplish something else in the Ukraine. And the result was a big mess with nothing being done. But then you look at the father and the son, and we're told that they are on the same It leaves no room for mistakes in the matter of salvation of our eternal soul. There's no ripping up of a contract like there is between people simply because there's a misunderstanding. The government of heaven is perfectly in sync when it comes to transactioning the business of our salvation. Now, the Gospel of John, it it takes the, uh, the idea even further. We can actually see that this is the case. Meaning, we can know that God and Jesus are on the same page concerning salvation because according in John, the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father are the same in the sense they share the same passion. They act the same. They have the same heart. 
The Bible would say if you read your Old Testament, you see God's heart being one way. And then you read your New Testament, you see God's heart being a different way. That would mean you're reading your Bible all wrong. Jesus literally says if you see him, you see the Father. And Jesus is saying I am the only one who is qualified to have you or instruct you on knowing the Father. Jesus says he knows the Father. Only the Father knows him. Now, if there's a Christian doctrine that needs recovered and emphasized, it might be this one. Because in our day and age, it is not only acceptable, but it is expected that your view and understanding of God would come from your own imagination. You want to know why there's so many different ideas about what God is like? It's not because the Bible's unclear. It is because most of us are attached to whatever we imagine God to be like and not attached to what God says he is like. And it's of utmost importance that we begin to bend our mind towards what God says about himself instead of how we imagine him to be. Remind yourself that there are a number of things that can influence your imagination. The way you were raised. Where you were raised. Some of you grew up punching cows. All I did was read comic books. It influences your imagination. The Old Testament is full of moments where God has to correct the way his people think about him. But the real problem is if we base our view of God simply on what we imagine him to be, you will always undercut the idea that we need the Son to have the Father. The Bible is clear. Jesus is necessary for our salvation because of who God truly is. And when we undercut our need for Jesus, we actually begin to undercut our own security. We begin to blunt encouragements. We begin to blunt the encouragements the Bible gives us when we're anxious, when we're afraid, when we're stressed. We begin to turn off the lights of comfort that we own. Let me tell you this. 100% of the time, without a single exception, when someone comes to me for counseling, when it comes to an issue of anxiety, fear, depression, there is always, always an erroneous view of God at play. I had a professor once who used to say, you know, anxiety is typically the product of either not knowing something about God or refusing to believe something about God. Only Jesus knows the Father. Only the Father knows Jesus. And this plays to why the Son has the ability to accomplish our salvation and why we can rest in that salvation. Because Christ knows the Father. And then number three this morning, Christ is our security because Christ brings us to the Father. Christ brings us to the Father. Note the last phrase there in verse 27. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. This idea is very similar to one we talked about last week. That means what he decides to who reveal the Father to is self-determining. Jesus acts or makes decisions based upon his own counsel. So let me maybe put it this way. God does not look down the corridors of time, see that you will believe, and then pick you to be saved because that would mean it would depend on you god does not look out into this church this morning and saying i better save that person because i need that kind of skill set in my church because that would depend on you no 
You are saved because the Son has decided to do so. The Father decides. The Son decides. And it's the idea here that there is no way then to the Father outside of the Son. There is, no, there is no God at the top of the mountain with multiple paths to get there. Jesus is saying, only He can bring you to the Father. But then there's another idea here. So Jesus is claimed to have all authority as it pertains to whether or not we have a peaceful relationship with God. Jesus is claimed to be the only one who can truly instruct us as it pertains to knowing God. But then he says here, it is he, not us, who decides whether or not we get that peace or whether we receive that instruction. And so the question is obvious. Does he? Will he? You see, all the happiness of humanity is based on our relationship with God. All our potential as rational human beings is based on our relationship with God. Jesus has the authority. He is the teacher. The question that should stir inside of us is, is he the inviter? And if he does invite, who does he invite? Well, if you want the answer to that question, you can just start reading verse 28. But I think the point here that Matthew's making is actually to make us look back. If we went all the way back to chapter 4 of Matthew... We're told that, he, that Jesus is going to go and live with those, or going to reach out to those who live in darkness. Jonathan Edwards described, Jesus is going to go after those who dangle over the fires of hell by a single thread. Whose soul would fall to eternal doom, should God ever remove his hand. But then we look at specifics, and we watch Jesus as he calls to himself fishermen, political zealots, an immoral tax collector, a pessimist, two brothers with anger issues, and more. And we watch as he casts out demons and he heals diseases and he feeds the hungry. We watch as he shows mercy and heals the servant of an enemy soldier. The point is that long before we arrive at verse 27, we should see that his invitation is clear. There doesn't seem to be anybody he doesn't invite. It doesn't seem that position in society matters. It doesn't seem if education matters. It doesn't seem political party matters. It doesn't seem nationality matters. It doesn't seem ethnicity matters. It doesn't seem to matter if your family name is different. And it doesn't even seem to matter if you're a great sinner. The invitation goes out. Now, most of you have heard all that before, right? Jesus has the sovereign authority and ability and does call whoever he wants. The problem is, and more often than not, we do not believe this. Or let me say it this way. We, th- we have biases, and so we think he does too. And we look at our neighborhood, and we read in the news, or we read in a book, and we say there's no way God would want that person. But the thing is, the thought comes around when we mess up, when we fail, when we sin, and we think, There's no way God would want that person. And suddenly there's this lingering sense of doubt that Jesus would ever invite a sinner or sufferer like me. And in that moment, you can either believe that God is what you imagine him to be, or you can believe that he is the God he says he is. You can either believe that he very reluctantly invites you, or you can believe that he invites you with the joyfulness to do so. 
and which way you go will dramatically impact how much an event or circumstance will begin to trouble your soul. Which way you go will dramatically impact the way you treat others. It will dramatically impact your urge to worship, whether or not you believe God who is who he says he is or who you imagine him to be. Don't undercut your own security. So in these words, which the world has always found offensive, we find security. We find rest. You see, our salvation, our peace with God, our confidence that he hears our prayers, cares about our troubles, it comes from Jesus who has the authority to give us these things. In other words, we find reassurance that what we have been given has not been given to us by mistake. It's not a contract that can be canceled. As we've said before, you cannot suddenly become unacceptable after you put your faith in Christ. Christ knows the Father. The Father knows the Son. Everyone's on the same page. And if we would just get on the same page with them, we would share in the joy they have for us. In other words, we find that Jesus, who is the only one with the authority to bring us to the Father, is the only one who has the ability to bring us to the Father, is in fact willing to bring all those who put their faith in him to the Father. And he never regrets it. He never hesitates. And he does it out of a joyful desire to do so. As I've said many times, the only door to God is an open door. And once you walk through it, you can never be cast out. Jesus is our security. Because he is our security, we can rest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this very brief message. But, Father, a needed one. A one that reminds us that that all of the troubles that seem to trouble us, all the things that give us anxiousness, they do not compare to the security we have in you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to enter into this security. I pray, Father, first of all, for those who may not know you, I pray they would put their faith in Christ and come to know the Father through the Son. I pray for those of us who do know you, I pray our imaginations would not run away with us, but, Father, we would would hold ourselves to who you tell us you are. And I pray, Father, we would never put down our need for Christ, for in him is our security, the reminder that you are a wonderful and gracious God full of mercy, that you bring us through the door and never again cast us out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your blue hymnals at this time. Turn to page 